welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Friday, February 26th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Margot Sanger-Kat, the New York Times. Good morning, guys. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. After the news, we will play my interview with Jonathan Cohn of HuffPost. John has a brand new book out this week on the history of the Affordable Care Act called The Ten-Year War, Obamacare, and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage, just in time for the ACA's 11th anniversary in a couple of weeks. But first this week the news. Let's start with filling out the health policy positions in the Biden administration. Finally, confirmation hearings. HHS Secretary-designate Javier Becerra got two, a courtesy hearing before the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and one before the Finance Committee, which is actually the one that actually votes whether to confirm him. That's expected sometime next week. Republicans have targeted Becerra as one of the nominations they plan to oppose, and there were some pretty tendentious questions, including several that simply accused him of being unqualified. Alice, I know you covered both hearings. Um, did anybody actually land a punch or is this uh, is this nomination in any trouble? So Democrats are not worried about this nomination. It's been a big flap on the right and advocacy groups have run attack ads about it and mounted call-in campaigns to try to pressure senators to vote against him. It didn't seem in the hearing that anyone who you don't expect <laughs> was, was going after him. And he even got a lot of difference and friendliness from some Republicans and even Republicans in the way they addressed him seemed to assume that he would get confirmed. They referred to HHS as your staff and they said when you're confirmed rather than if. And so this really looks to be on track as of right now. There could always be surprises, but as of right now, things look to be moving forward. I was struck by some of the the lines of attack, one of them being this whole idea that because he's not a doctor, he's not qualified to run HHS, as I have, I think, put on Twitter a couple of times. There have been 12 HHS secretaries since it became the Department of Health and Human Services, and they split off education, and three of them have been doctors. Um, the, the The biggest single plurality have been former governors, but there have certainly been former members of Congress and former House members. I'm, is this sort of the best they could do? I mean, I'm just sort of struck by why Republicans are saying, well, he shouldn't run HHS because he's not a doctor. When people brought up the fact that most past HHS secretaries have not been doctors, Republicans respond, oh, but it's a pandemic now, so it's different. Of course, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of medical professionals working on the front lines in the government at HHS and other agencies, um, you know, and the HHS secretary, it's an administrative role. They're not performing surgery. They're not, you know, setting the exact medical guidance themselves. But it was interesting that that was sort of the primary line of attack rather than his record on abortion and contraception did definitely come up several times, but it it didn't come up nearly as much as just sort of these basic questions about his qualifications. 
I was also kind of struck because uh, Senator Richard Burr, who's a new ranking member on the HELP Committee, pointed out that, well, you know, you don't become a subject expert from being on a health committee for 25 years, which Becerra was. He was on the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee because, gee, Richard Burr, who really is a subject matter expert on a lot of things public health, became a subject matter expert by serving on health committees for 25 years. He was kind of the last person I would expect to say that. It's hard. I mean, I think of some of the like most expert policy people I know, and a lot of them got their policy expertise either serving on those committees or working for those committees. That's kind of where the policy gets made. That just struck me as like really, really strange. One thing that I was impressed about, because a lot of the times these are just like partisan slugfests, which personally doesn't really interest me. But I was happy to see that there was actually policy being asked by the Republicans, you know, Susan Collins. And, you know, there was talk about rural health care and nursing homes and telehealth and, you know, and other issues that were actually, you know, somewhat substantive. So that was actually quite refreshing for me. I did not dread watching the hearing as much as I usually do because and, it, and you know, obviously it was quite a difference from particularly price back in the day. Although I will say that one thing about confirmation hearings is that they always end up being parochial because it's one of the few chances that senators get to ask about home state concerns. So the rural, you know, the members from rural states ask about rural health and telehealth. And there was a lot of there are questions about the Indian Health Service. You know, I've watched a lot of HHS confirmation hearings. Um, and while abortion and reproductive health usually do come up at some point, I feel like this was way more front and center um, than for previous Democratic nominees who had similar records and similar public views. And I'm wondering, is this a reflection on Becerra himself, who does have a fairly lengthy record, particularly as California Attorney General, on this? Or is this a reflection of how the Republican Party has changed and the anti-abortion wing is a much more important part of the Republican base than it has been? I think both. And I think I think it's one of the issues that they've gravitated to and even more in, in this post- Trump era, along with, as we've seen this week, whipping up anxiety about transgender rights. I think that it's becoming a lot more prominent as a way to engage the Republican base and rile people up. But Becerra is only going to pursue policies on abortion and contraception that Joe Biden himself supports. So if it weren't Becerra in that role, it would be somebody else pushing those exact same policy changes. And um, folks on the right even acknowledge that, but they uh, are saying that because of Becerra's, especially his record as attorney general, on some of these abortion rights cases, uh, they want to block his confirmation at, to sort of send a signal about their power. I also think it reflects the sort of disappearance of Obamacare from the Republican health care playbook. I mean, if you sort of we have to go back a while, but if you think about when Secretary Burwell was confirmed, like all of the questions were about that. And, you know, throughout the Obama era, it was hard for them to even get a CMS administrator confirmed because the questions about Obamacare were so hot. And I've been sort of uh, thinking and writing about this trend for a while, like the Republican convention, they, Obamacare barely got a mention after being this really primary theme for them for a lot of years. And so I think some of the emphasis on reproductive rights and abortion is like that is something that does unite and energize their base in a way that Obamacare used to. And I think the politics of Obamacare are just less effective for them. And so this is a part of the HHS secretary's portfolio that if they want to brand him as being bad and contrary to their policy goals, it's a way that they can distinguish uh, their views from his. Uh, and some of these other areas, I think, actually are becoming less partisan than they have been in the past. 
Yeah, and I will point out that uh, that our podcast colleague Joanne Cannon has a story out today on sort of the post-Obamacare Republican position on health, which I'm sure we will talk about more at some point because I have I have some other thoughts on that. Um, but Becerra was not the only top HHS official to get a hearing this week. Yesterday, the HELP Committee heard from the former and possibly future Surgeon General Vivek Murthy and the nominee for Assistant Secretary for Health, uh, Pennsylvania Health Secretary Rachel Levine. Levine would be the first transgender official to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And she got some pretty pointed questions, particularly from Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Meanwhile, the Washington Post reported earlier this week that during his interregnum from being Surgeon General, Murthy earned more than $2 million giving speeches and consulting with major companies about how to handle COVID. Yet that didn't even come up in the hearing, at least not during the 90% of it that I saw. Yet Neera Tandon is likely to not be confirmed because she said mean things about senators on Twitter. Is there some sort of double standard here, it seems harder than ever to figure out what gets someone confirmed and what gets someone in danger of not getting confirmed. Obviously, you know, it's been pointed out that the, that the women and the people of color who are being nominated by Biden are getting a harder go than the white men. Yeah, and that's what Senator Padilla said in the Becerra hearing. He said that they're being held to different standards. You know, I mean, it is interesting to see who's passing through quickly. I think Neera Tannen is a bit of a special case. Like people like to talk about her and the things that senators are mentioning and like compare them in an apples to apples way to other uh, candidates. And of course, to President Trump, who also had quite an aggressive uh, and, you know, uncouth Twitter presence throughout his presidency. But I do think that she is a figure who, while she is a woman of color and she has a tremendous portfolio of working in health policy. She also is a very partisan figure. She's seen that way. All these people know her. You know, many of them are calling her by her first name. Um, and I think that, you know, she did personally insult a lot of the people whose votes she needs, um, which again, you know, senators have thick skins and should have thick skins, but also they are humans and uh, they may not want someone who they see as a real partisan crusader and who also has been unkind to them in a job. It, it just, it, it does strike me that she is an unusual candidate. Uh, and while the broader pattern you're mentioning may be true, uh, I think sort of I would sidebar her as kind of special case and then start to look to some of these others. I think it's a fair point, though, when you're focusing just on the question of qualifications. Nobody is saying that Nira is not qualified for the position. It's about her personality and her social media presence. But I think it is interesting that Republicans are going after Becerra as unqualified when there have been many cabinet nominees who don't have a long record of subject matter expertise in their particular fields. I mean, I'm thinking of Pete Buttigieg, for instance, who is a white man and who's most known for being the mayor of a fairly small town with not a ton of transportation infrastructure and now is running the transportation department. I didn't hear Republicans go after him unqualified and he was confirmed quite easily. There are other cabinet secretaries with similar situations uh, who've been fairly easily confirmed so far. So I think while it's hard to sort of draw sort of an across the board pattern, I think when it comes to who is accused of being unqualified, it's worth interrogating a little more. And I just want to point out, I've known Nira since 2006 or seven, so for a long time. And she's, it's not just Twitter. She can be very abrasive, but she's not as any more abrasive than an awful lot of men I know who never get questioned, you know, because they can be jerks. Um, but I feel like it's not, it isn't even because she's a person of color. It's because she's a woman that in some cases there is a double standard. But I agree with you, Margot. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a slightly different category. So, you know, we now have the kind of more or less the full suite of important health 
appointees from the Biden administration. I guess we're still waiting on FDA, right? Still waiting on FDA. We mentioned last week, but I will I will point out for those who weren't listening that Chiquita Brooks-Lashore um, has been named to, to head CMS. And I haven't heard a peep about any possibility that she might not be confirmed. She, she's got a lot of, of experience, both in the private sector and in the government. And everybody seems to like her. And one one would assume it wouldn't be that hard. But you never know. Go ahead, Margaret. I, I just I just want to make a general point about the kinds of people that um, Biden is picking for these important jobs. And I think Becerra is a little bit different. I mean, I think he was chosen because he was a politician. And I think that the HHS secretary position is one where governors, as you said, are often chosen because it's just a huge administrative job. You have to interact with uh, a lot of other politicians, both on the Hill and uh, in the States. And you need to be able to just like manage a huge staff of people. So I think the qualifications for that job tend to be uh, a little bit more in the kind of politics management realm. But basically all of these other jobs are being filled by people who were in the machine in the Obama administration implementing Obamacare. And it is a staff of people that is very different than the kinds of people who were brought in during the Trump administration. These are people who know where all the buttons and levers are, who understand the kind of subtleties of their regulatory power, of what requires legislation, and probably are coming into these jobs with like a very long punch list of stuff that they want to do. And I'm not saying this to insult these people, but I think they're not like visionaries. These are not people who, uh, you know, like Don Berwick and the Obama administration are famous for having these big think papers and being philosophical about healthcare. or, you know, we're going to necessarily push for really dramatically different kinds of policies than we've seen in the past. But they are people who are experienced and competent and are very likely to give us a kind of continuation of the kinds of policies that we saw in the Obama era. And a reversal of what Trump did, because, you know, these folks need, I mean, I think the view in the Biden administration right now is to rewind four years because they have to fix everything that was done. I mean, this was Biden's first executive order was to go through everything for the first four years. So to some extent, if you want the, you know, the the best and fastest people to do that, it's the people who did it in the first place. So and as we see, and as we'll talk about a little later, they're already starting to do that. Yes, we will. And I will talk about this much more at some point. All right. I do want to talk about the Supreme Court, though, because we haven't done that in a while. The court did not deliver its decision in, on that ACA case yesterday, which, of course, is why we are main reason why we are taping today, because I thought it might come down while we were taping on Thursday. But the court did decide to accept a case over the Trump administration rules on Title X, the federal family planning program. Those are the rules that effectively kicked Planned Parenthood out of Title X by barring funding for groups that perform or even counsel about abortion. Since I'm the old person at this panel today, I will point out that the Supreme Court, even when it was a lot less conservative than this one, upheld very similar rules way back in 1991. It was the very first Supreme Court case I ever covered. Um, This case won't be heard until next term. And if it gets heard at all, Alice, do you think the Biden administration will manage to undo these rules before the Supreme Court gets a chance to uh, enshrine them as uh, okay? Well, I think that now that some of the top officials are moving towards confirmation and the gears are moving a little more over at the agency, it's definitely possible, although there was frustration among Title X providers, uh, including those who had to leave the program over the Trump rules, that Biden didn't directly order the agency to roll back the rules and rather ordered a review of it that may or may not result in a reversal. And so it's moving along. And I will say it'll be interesting just given that 
when it comes to the Medicaid work requirements case, the Republican side of things is still pushing for a hearing anyway, even if the rule is reversed. And so I wonder if something similar could happen in the Title 10 case where people push for a hearing anyways to sort of set a precedent so a future conservative administration could impose similar rules. The Biden administration is finding itself with a couple of these cases before the court, the Medicaid work requirement case, the Title X case, and also, of course, the Obamacare challenge. You know, it's finding itself in a somewhat awkward position because the general policy of attorney general in like almost every administration, with very few exceptions, is that they should defend the laws that are passed by Congress and should defend the policies, the regulatory policies that are finalized by the executive branch, regardless of whether or not the administration who is currently in power really agrees with them. And so what we're seeing now is like a little bit of a race, because when it comes to the Obamacare case, it's it's actually sort of like a special exception because the Trump administration violated this norm. The Trump administration declined to defend a law that was passed by Congress and regulations that were written by the executive and said, we're we want it overturned by the court. So the Biden administration reversing its position on that particular case is kind of just like a return to form. But when it comes to the Medicaid case and the Title X case, and I think there are some other examples that are kind of coming down uh, the pike potentially if they get to the Supreme Court, what they really need to do is change the policy before the case hits the court. Because even if the case proceeds, they can say, well, the current policy of the federal government is something different than this. So we obviously disagree with it and we're not going to defend it. Whereas if it stays on the books, I really think it's a tough position for them, you know, President Biden is a president who is really committed, I think, much more than President Trump to preserving the norms of governance. And this is one of them. And I think that they do not want to be in a position where they are having to defend regulations and policies that they don't agree with. On the other hand, I think they do not want to be in a position of opposing things that the federal government lawfully did. You know, in all of these cases, I think it's like a bit of a race. Can they reverse these things quickly enough? In the case of the Medicaid work requirements, I think they pretty clearly can. Um, they have already begun this process. The uh, normal process for re- uh, revoking waivers is relatively quick and not very complicated. There is some additional uh, possible uh, complication because of some things that the previous CMS administrator did. But just for for the sake of this conversation, that's something I think they can do pretty quickly. When it comes to the Title X regs, those are notice and comment regulations. There actually is a fairly lengthy and complicated process that by law they must undertake, and they have to undertake it seriously, or they will also be vulnerable to legal challenges that they did it in a rushed and slapdash way. So that one is going to be harder. And I think this is the part that people don't understand is that if these are final regulations, the only way to make them go away is to do more regulations and the regulatory process takes. I mean, at you know, even when you're doing it fast, it takes usually the better part of a year. You have to write this, you know, proposed rule with enormous justifications. And as you say, there has to be time for notice and comment. And, and if you skip any of these steps, which the Trump administration did in several cases, then you get slapped down by a judge. It says, nope, you violated the Administrative Procedure Act. Back to the beginning for you. So um, it'll take as long to undo some of these things as it did to do them. I would say the other wrinkle with these things is that we know in the long run that the Biden administration is not going to continue the policies of the Trump administration, right? Like they want Title X funding to go to these providers. They they want people to be able to get Medicaid, whether or not they're able to demonstrate that they're working a minimum number of hours. The question really is not so much about what will the policy be. The Supreme Court is not going to dictate what the Biden administration does on either of these issues. The question is much more about what will the precedent be for the future. So if 
the Title X case gets decided in the favor of the Trump administration's policy before the Biden people can reverse the rule, that just makes it much easier for the next Republican administration to quickly implement that policy and have it be relatively bulletproof versus having to go through a whole other set of legal review that goes up through the courts slowly. So the consideration here is not what is going to happen with Title X under President Joe Biden. We pretty much know what that is, just might take a while to change. The question is what will happen to Title X under the next Republican president who shares the policy priorities of the Trump administration on this issue. Right. And it's the same thing with Medicaid work requirements, that if the judge comes down and says, you know, Medicaid work requirements are consistent with the mission of Medicaid, then the next Republican president could at some point say, oh, well, you know, yes, certain state, you want to uh, start implementing Medicaid work requirements? Sure, no problem. You know, we have the Supreme Court ruling on this. And so that's why I think the Biden administration is rushing. It was kind of strange that earlier this month, they you know, started the process of revoking the approvals in a very quiet way on like a Friday afternoon. You know, you would think that this is something that he campaigned against. And, you know, this was a huge issue for the Trump administration and, you know, seemed like a big issue for him. And yet it was completely done under the radar. And, you know, so I think it was also a bit of a rush just to make sure that they could try to circumvent the hearing for later in March before the, the oral arguments and kudos to Alice's colleagues at Politico for reporting that that was going to happen, which I think is yeah. really the main reason that any of us know about it. Very true. Also, the acting solicitor general asked the Supreme Court officially this week to uh, to cancel the, the March 29th oral arguments, which also got very little notice. And, and I guess Arkansas, one of the states involved, has objected. And I actually did a little noodling around to see if the if it's likely that the Supreme Court will, in fact, cancel them. And the answer is Probably, but not necessarily. So we'll, we will have to see what happens to that. I want to talk at least briefly about the sausage making machine on Capitol Hill. The House, even as we are speaking now, is debating the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill under the budget reconciliation process. Congress, meaning the House and Senate, has an impending deadline on this bill because the unemployment uh, benefits run out in mid-March. Right, Tammy? Yes, they do. They start running out in mid-March. So the, they really need to get this done. Um, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of money in here for COVID, including funding for vaccines, schools, businesses, and additional uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, there's apparently not going to be a $15 an hour minimum wage, or at least there isn't in the Senate, because the parliamentarian has said, nope, can't do that under reconciliation. But there is also a big, albeit temporary, expansion of subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, as well as big subsidies to help people keep their employer coverage, even if they've been laid off through COBRA. We've seen some pushback, noting that these provisions spend a lot of money to get comparatively few people new coverage. But that's not really even the point of these provisions, right? It's interesting because the COBRA thing has sort of been attacked from all sides, both for being too expensive to help too few people and for being not generous enough to help some of the people it's targeted at. It would cover 85% of the health insurance premiums of laid off workers. But a lot of these private plans are so expensive that even having to pay just 15% is hundreds of dollars a month, which is more than a lot of unemployed workers can afford. And so at the same time that it's getting criticized for being a more expensive 
potentially wasteful model rather than, you know, progressives have suggested instead we could just auto enroll folks in one of these public insurance programs for much cheaper, etc. But then you have labor groups, especially from the hospitality industry, I've been reporting on this, saying it should be 100% uh, COBRA coverage, which is what Joe Biden campaigned on and, and what he originally requested from Congress, which of course would cost even more. <laughs> so it's been an interesting fight to follow. I see the Democrats as kind of trying to do two things at once with the health care policies in this bill. I think on the one hand, they have been told by the president, do COVID relief, do short-term stimulus and, you know, put money in people's pockets, make it easier for them to get through this short-term economic crisis. And then at the same time, I think they're kind of laundering in some of their long-term goals for permanent policy changes. So, you know, uh, as Al said, President Biden campaigned on expanding the generosity of Obamacare subsidies, uh, both to make subsidies available for people higher on the income spectrum who have found insurance out of reach, and also to make it more generous for people lower on the income spectrum so that they can really afford a more generous health plan. So that policy is in this bill, but in a two-year way, so it will expire. I think no one who wrote that into the bill wants it to expire. I think that you know the president and the uh, congressional staffers who wrote it are hoping that that will be a permanent policy, but because of the way that this bill is being packaged and sold, it's being treated as kind of, well, we're going to just put more money in people's pockets in the short term. We're going to, you know, uh, and also provide some cushion for people who need insurance because of this short term crisis. We'll, we'll try it and see if people like it. Yeah. The, the COBRA policy strikes me more as just a straight short term relief kind of provision. I don't think that the people who wrote this bill want to get in the long term business of highly subsidizing um, employer coverage for people who have lost their jobs. I think it's sort of more in the vein of the unemployment insurance ex- extension that just recognition that this is a very unusual situation and they want to provide as much continuity for people. You know, COBRA can be a better option for people who, for example, have a lot of healthcare needs and they might have already spent through their deductible. So if they if they enroll in an Obamacare plan instead, they're kind of starting over again. And of course, you know, employer plans tend to be, because they're more expensive, they tend to cover more doctors and hospitals. They tend to have less cost sharing. They're, they just tend to be a little bit more generous. And so some people prefer them. But one thing that the clearly the administration is doing or and the Democrats are doing, and this is what the Republicans are accusing them of, is trying to put things that they've always wanted, like the minimum wage, which they're not going to get. But who is going to, in two years, vote to take away you know, more generous subsidies. I mean, similar also with the child tax credit, which they're going to be improving for one year. But again, are you all of a sudden going to, you know, cut the tax credit, cut the subsidies after people already like it? I mean, that's that's the whole issue. It's very hard to take away things from people. So this is a, a good cover for the Democrats to say, well, you know, people need the help because of the pandemic. And then we'll just keep it going after. Although I will point out, I mean, those those things are all true. But I will point out that Congress has let things expire before. We'll we'll be looking forward to another fight over this. But yes, I agree with all of you that I mean, they're doing this sort of in a in a clever way so that they can do things that are popular. Look at look at pre-existing condition protections and keeping kids on your health plan until you're 26. It is risky, Julie. I mean, I agree with you. These are not inexpensive reforms. You know, uh, broadening the Generosity of the subsidies is something that Democrats on the Hill have wanted to do for a really long time, many of them uh, since they were writing the Affordable Care Act. And it is definitely something that President Biden campaigned on. But the long term 
cost of doing that is not trivial. And it seems hard for me to imagine that we are going to be in a position where we have the same uh, openness to deficit spending in two years that we have right now. So it, it's clear that lawmakers are taking a gamble that this will be popular enough that there will t- they will have to find a way to pay for it in the long term. But I don't think that that is absolutely guaranteed. And they, of course, could have uh, made this a permanent policy in this in this law and decided not to because of the way that they're packaging it and selling it. Right. But in two years, if the Republicans curtailing deficit spending, then that's still a win for the Democrats, even if the provision is struck, because then it's, you know, the Republicans once again are taking away people's health care, just like they tried to do under the Trump administration. Yeah, it's hard to predict how this might play out, but it's kind of high stakes for everybody involved. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for the news this week. Now we will play my interview with Jonathan Cohn, and then we will be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my friend and longtime colleague and fellow Michigan sports fan, Jonathan Cohn. He has a brand new book out this week called The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. It's obviously a must-read if you're a health nerd. John, welcome to What the Health. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. (laughs) So, so much ink has been spilled literally and digitally over recounting the near deaths, plural, of the Affordable Care Act, both before and after its passage. Why a new book now? Well, I will be honest with you. And after almost every one of those near death experiences, I thought at times, oh, maybe now would be a good time to sort of sit back and (laughs) watch and, 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 and take stock of the Affordable Care Act. And it was always, oh, no, here comes another one. And, and you know, and, and it was this sort of constantly unfolding story. It was really after um, the end of the repeal effort in 2017 and then the midterms in 2018 when Republicans lost their House majority. And it looked like, you know, they had lost their ability to repeal the law. It finally felt like we were at... I don't want to say a stopping point. I mean, obviously, you know, there's still a Supreme Court case out there and who knows what's in the future. But it felt like for the first time since the law had been passed, we were in a sort of state of political equilibrium. You know, the the country had sort of rendered its verdict on it. The voters had said, you know, they didn't like everything about the Affordable Care Act, but they didn't want it to go away. And we also, it's been a couple of years now, we can really see what we've got in terms of policy. We can now look, you know, for the first few years, they're learning how to make it work. Different states are doing different things. Finally, we can kind of take a step back and say, all right, here's what it did. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. You know, here's, you know, the good and the bad. And we can kind of start to really learn some lessons from it. What do you think that people who are pushing for health reform now, including the very ardent and very vocal backers of Medicare for all, misunderstand most about the travels and the travails of the Affordable Care Act? I feel like they they feel like they're starting from scratch. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the, the two things I wanted to get across um, in, in sort of writing this. I spent a lot of time on history. I feel like the history is so important. And, 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 and history, certainly going all the way back to the early 20th century when healthcare first becomes a debate in the United States. But particularly, and Julie, you remember this, uh, the, the fight over healthcare in the 1990s when Bill Clinton was president. Yes, I, I am a, <laughs> I've lived that one too. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I felt like what I wanted to get across was to understand the Affordable Care Act and the way it looks, and to understand healthcare in general, you really need to understand the political environment in which it was debated. And I feel like, I mean, it's been 10 years since the Affordable Care Act, but I feel like people have already forgotten 
what the environment felt like. And they certainly forgot the sort of hangover of the Clinton healthcare plan. I mean, I always felt like, and, and I sort of try to show in the book, that that, 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 that experience of, of you know, Bill Clinton getting elected, they put, all, they, they put all of their efforts into passing a healthcare reform bill. For a while, it looked like they were, they were right there. It really looked like they were going to succeed. And then it all fell apart, and it was, they had a horrible result in the midterms. That left, and, and, and again, you, you remember this better than I do, and, but it left such a deep scar on the psyche of reform advocates of the Democratic Party. And so much of what followed was an attempt to learn from past failures, and that one in particular, like, okay, we're going to get another shot at this. Let's not make the same mistakes again. And that shaped so many of the decisions about both substance and strategy that eventually led to what we got with the Affordable Care Act. And yet, I mean, do you feel like people who are coming to this sort of fresh think it's too easy? It's like, oh, the Affordable Care Act really doesn't do that much. You know, why on earth if they had, you know, 60 votes in the Senate, which they did for like all of 15 minutes, you know, didn't they reach even further? There is some uh, a tendency to forget how hard it was and how complex it was. I mean, you know, there's that great Donald Trump quote, right? Who knew healthcare was so complicated? Well, you knew, I knew, people who had been around it for a while knew. All those committee chairmen knew. Oh, they sure did. You know, it's a combination of, you know, ideological political factors. The fact that, you know, you had a lot of, for Democrats, you had a lot of conservative Democrats. Yes, they had 60 votes, but that included Ben Nelson, that included Blanche Lincoln, included a lot of Democrats from conservative parts of the country who were who did not want to have a very expansive piece of legislation. Um, it also, you know, included the very familiar problems of healthcare. The fact that you have all of these interests that are so deeply invested financially in the status quo, and they all have lobbyists, and, and trying to move that is just really difficult. And then you throw onto it, like, you know, things that, you know, they didn't get a lot of attention in the press. But again, you know about this. I know about this. I mean, there would be these knockdown drag out fights over regional funding formulas. And all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, you got, you know, your Minnesota delegation. I mean, Minnesota is a relatively progressive state. These are all people you would expect, you know, to be gung ho on reform. But they, you know, when time comes, the Mayo Clinics in Minnesota and they're, you know, that's going to affect, you know, some detail of some bill. And just every one of those was, 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 was so hard to get through. And and I think, you know, when we think about the sort of magnitude of what was accomplished, you know, with the Affordable Care Act and what was done, and, you know, we can argue what was good about it, what was bad about it, you really do have to kind of put it in the perspective of how difficult it was to get anything through Congress. I mean, it was a miracle they got it as far as they did. I think I used the word miracle or something pretty close to it. And I believe that. I mean, it was really hard. Well, there were so many moments. I remember I spent some of them, some of them with you in the hallways where it really looked like it wasn't going to happen. There were multiple brushes with death. I mean, the, I think the one people remember the most is in early 2010 when you know, for Ted Kennedy's open seat, Scott Brown wins the Senate election in Massachusetts and the Democrats lose their 60th vote in the Senate. But there were moments before that. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the the two that I think about a lot, actually the three, cause, and I say three because one of them I didn't realize until I'd really gone and re-reported this all. I mean, the first is, first when Obama gets into office, there's all this pressure just to not do health care reform. The economy is collapsing. His pollsters are like, you've got, you know, this is just a quagmire. You don't need to do this. And he's like, no, no, I really want to do this. And that was really him, I think. I think that was that was an Obama thing. Like that was him wanting to do that is why that happened. And something similar in August after there are all these protests from the Tea Party. And, and there was really a moment when a lot of people thought, OK, we need to cut bait, cut like a quick deal. 
You know, the other moment, and, I, and, and, and again, Julie, you may remember this better than I do. I had not realized how close some of the Democratic leaders thought they were to defeat when the public option fell apart. And, you know, Joe Lieberman insisted on getting the public option out. And the progressives were furious. I mean, you know, they sort of put up with so many comp- concessions, so many compromises. And now they got Joe Lieberman here, who they don't like in the first place. You know, speaking, as we both know, for a bunch of other conservative Democrats. But, you know, it was Joe Lieberman, you know, holding the knife. And there was a real sense of despondency there, more than I realized at the time. But talking to people afterwards, they were like, yeah, we didn't know if we were going to be able to keep it going. And that was, you know, again, I think that's a credit to the the, the leaders, you know, people who like you don't hear about as much people like Harry Reid. I mean, Harry Reid was a master strategist in this. He really was. And that's not to say he got everything right, but. You just kind of, you know, you. This is the fact that they got this through Congress is a credit to the architects uh, in Congress who who got this through. So you got to sit down with uh, former President Obama while you were writing this book. What was the the most interesting thing that he shared with you that you didn't already know? There are these things you assume, right? That you know, and it's sort of interesting to actually ask him. So, like, I was sort of curious. Like, you know, we always talk about the fact that there were these reforms in Massachusetts before that Romney had signed, and did they really play that big an impact? He was like, "Oh yeah." He's like, "You know, I'm you know in the middle of it. It's like that was like a big." flashing sign to me like we can do it this way so that that was interesting and you know it was interesting to hear his exasperation that and and you pick this up also if you read his memoir a little bit i mean i think there is an exasperation he feels which is very mutual uh with some of the progressive critics uh of what they did and you know i think he feels like Guys, you know, you don't know how hard this was, what we were just talking about. I think the progressives feel like, well, you could have fought a little harder for some of the things we care about. You know, I think you can make a reasonable case on either side of that, to be quite honest. And, you know, it depends on who you ask. It was very interesting talking to him about working, trying to get Republican support. He really wanted it. You know, that's his nature, right? I mean, you know, when he came in, he really, he wanted to be, you know, there's no red America, there's no blue America, there's only the United States of America. I mean, I think he believes all of that. And it struck me talking to him that had Republicans, you know, there, I, we were just talking about how the fact that he really stuck with comprehensive reform at, at moments when his own advisors were pushing him to back off, especially Rahm Emanuel. At various points, there were other advisors as well. And he stuck with it. But, you know, he said something. I don't even remember if the quote made it into the book, but he talked about the fact that, you know, one reason he stuck with it was because there was no sign Republicans were going to take half a loaf. You know, you can imagine a scenario and he didn't say this, but I'm just as me sort of reading between the lines. You can imagine a scenario where in the summer of 2009, five or six Republicans come to him and say, look, if you do a deal with us and you just say expand Medicaid to cover all kids and we do some reform of everyone else, but it's, it's, it's still pretty far short of what you want, but we'll vote for it. I don't know that he turns that down. Um, I think if there had been a sort of rump group of Republicans, six or 10 of them, enough that it felt meaningful to him. He might have thought about that a lot more, you know, that that he might have gone for that. In a funny way, I think the fact that Republicans were so dead set against any compromise ended up pushing Obama and the Democrats to do something bigger. I think there was probably a lane for a, a scaled down version as a compromise, but you needed to see some sign of Republican buy-in and there were no signs of that. 
So building on exactly that, I feel like the Affordable Care Act kind of came of age along with the rise of social media and the rise of disinformation, um, which was a gigantic part of the process of getting it passed and implemented. We've seen many of the same problems surrounding efforts to control COVID. It's not just Washington that's broken when it comes to making policy, is it? No. I mean, we see it at the state level. We see it at the local level. I mean, it's we have a pretty dysfunctional. <laughs> it's kind of amazing we're doing as well well as we are um, on COVID in some ways, honestly. I mean, on the vaccine rollout, for example, I, I've been a slightly less pessimistic than a lot of people sort of saying all along, you know, we're actually not doing that badly on vaccine rollout. I mean, it's got lots of problems, but all things considered, given where we have no public health infrastructure in this country, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable it's going as well as it is. And actually, we're doing better than most of the countries in Europe. There's it's a complicated story. Why? It's a whole other conversation. But it really is. And, you know, our federalist structure makes this all so difficult because, I mean, you do, you know, with something like healthcare, you have to defer to the states to some extent. Because, I mean, I remember when this debate came up in 2009 and 2010. And if you're a good liberal, you definitely want the federal government doing anything and you don't want the states doing anything. That's just sort of boilerplate liberal what you believe. It's not that you don't want the states doing anything, it's that you don't trust the states to do what you want. Exactly. If you trusted every state would operate, you know, their system, like California or Maryland would run theirs, as a liberal, you would feel better. Um, But uh, I do remember hearing from people who were liberals at the time, you know, who had sort of, as they confronted the reality of this, they're like, you know, the honest truth is, like, states do more regulation of insurance than the federal government does. Like, I'm not so sure I really... At the end of the day, like we may be better off letting the states continue to do that because this is just really hard to do. Um, you know, one of those cases of sort of policy reality colliding against political philosophy, as often happens in healthcare. So, what does the story of the ACA tell us about how to pursue major health changes going forward? Can we even hope for major changes going forward? I mean, if anything, we're more polarized now than we were in 2009 and 2010. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to see anything as sweeping and ambitious as the Affordable Care Act getting through without some kind of major structural changes in Congress or a massive political realignment. They barely got the ACA through. What would be something analogous now to kind of get to truly universal coverage, whether it's Medicare for all or something like it, if you're thinking of like one big bill that does it, I mean, obviously you could do what the Affordable Care Act, you know, what they did and work for years and kind of put together a proposal and build the strength up. Um, I I think it's hard to imagine that at this point. I am one of those people who believes the Senate at this point has, between the filibuster and the small state bias, is just so out of whack with popular will that it's, it's just hard to imagine getting major reforms through that. And I think that needs attention. Um, You know, an interesting question is, what can you do quietly and incrementally? I mean, we see in the COVID relief bill, right, that Biden and the Democrats have this sort of something, you know, they're going to increase, they want to increase the subsidies for people buying on the exchanges. It's a substantial increase. Something, you know, Obama and the Democrats would have- It's at both the bottom and the top of the income scale, which is interesting. Yes, yes. I don't think enough people have sort of caught on to that. It's not just that if you get a subsidy now, you get a bigger subsidy. It's that if you don't get a subsidy now, you might still get one, you know, and you know, this is something the architects of, of the law always wanted to do. They wanted to be able to sort of build on that. And they never got the chance. Now they can. And what's interesting, it's kind of getting snuck in there, right? Because it's part of this big COVID package. And it's it's not, at least so far, hasn't drawn a lot of uh, attention, maybe, you know, controversy. Maybe it will. I don't know. Of course, it's temporary. It's two years. So we'll see if they can make it permanent. But, you know, I do wonder, I mean, there is this this sense, I get the sense at least, 
that so much of the fights over the Affordable Care Act were not about what was in the Affordable Care Act, right? They were about broader political forces. You know, it was, it's not that I, I, I was surprised that conservatives and Republican voters didn't like the Affordable Care Act. I was surprised how intensely they hated it, right? Given that it drew on conservative ideas. I mean, and I think this was the assumption going in was that, you know, there'd be some interest among some conservatives and Republicans. I always thought that was a lot more about the Obama part than the care part. You know, certainly we've all heard and read stories. And if we talked in the White House back then, they were often in this conundrum of, People like, why isn't Obama out there defending things? And then they would say, well, we find that when he goes out and defend, like, you know, he riles up the opponents more than he rallies the supporters. You know, maybe the way you get to a better healthcare system, it's an interesting question, doing it quietly. You know, you sort of, you, you sort of work around the edges and that can be frustrating. On the other hand, maybe that's, a, I don't know the answer, but maybe that's a better path. I always sort of say, I feel like, my personal feeling is the debate about Medicare for all, which I think I use, I tend to think of as a sort of broadly descriptive term to like include any kind of national health insurance system that, you know, has very low co-pays and the government's in charge of spending. And, it, you know, there are variations on it. You could have private insurance playing some role, whatever. We tend to talk about it as an all or nothing thing. But, you know, you can think of it as a set of dials that you turn up and, and maybe you just keep turning up those dials. So, you know, you keep like Biden's doing now, you give people more assistance so their out-of-pocket costs go down. And you start to see the government taking more control over prices and budgeting, and you simplify things. And, and maybe the next phase of healthcare reform isn't one big leap, but a series of smaller steps. I don't know. Or maybe it is one big leap. I mean, maybe someone's able to do that. I, you know, who knows? Well, that will be the next book. Um, right. Jonathan <laughs> it was so great having you here. And uh, and what the listeners can't see is that uh, in, in, your, in your Zoom background is the University of Michigan basketball court. So uh, good luck and go blue. Go blue. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post a link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Well, I picked a story that's being jointly done by The Guardian, uh, running with Kaiser Health News as part of a series, and it looks at, the headline is, it doesn't feel worth it. COVID is pushing New York's EMTs to the brink. And, you know, as some of you know, I live in New York. So this is something that, you know, really struck me. And I actually didn't, I learned a lot about just how EMTs operate in general and, you know, how low they're paid. I mean, I could only sort of imagine how stressful the job is, but I didn't realize how low their pay is. And, you know, this just really points out, it, it says new uh, hires make only $35,000 a year. And that in fiscal year 2019, before the pandemic and before the stress, more than 13% of EMTs and paramedics left their jobs. And so now obviously COVID is making that so much more difficult and, you know, terribly several have taken their lives. And I mean, you know, it's just another example of the stress that COVID is putting on the nation's healthcare system outside of what we normally think of as doctors and nurses and, you know, people in hospitals. So I thought this was very eye-opening and hopefully I will never need New York's EMS, but if I do, I hope they improve this situation so that these EMS workers are not constantly quitting so that they're there for people like me and other New Yorkers. Alice. I chose a KHN story by uh, Lauren Weber and Hannah Recht called COVID vaccine websites violate disability laws, create inequity for the blind. 
this was um, a really good dive into how most websites that cities and states are using to have people sign up for vaccines don't have the accessibility functions necessary for people who are visually impaired, who use programs that read things out loud to them. Um, those don't function with these drop-down menus and, and other things that um, need to be done for people to actually get an appointment. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm seeing, especially in D.C., a lot of uh, complaining <laughs> going on about the website and you know, I think that, you know, we should keep in mind a lot of people have it a lot harder <laughs> um, and that all of us have a lot of privileges from access to Internet and these troubles for uh, folks with disabilities. It's also illegal, by the way, that these websites are inaccessible for people with disabilities. Margot, I wanted to draw everyone's attention to a website that I just keep looking at all the time. It's by this uh, researcher named Yuyang Gu. And he has been throughout the COVID pandemic, I think, one of the best modelers of the future. Uh, he is not from a large academic institution, and he sort of his uh, projections have not gotten quite as much attention as some of the other ones that came out of academia. But I think he's actually been super accurate and super transparent about how he's doing his work. And uh, this latest project that he's done is called, he used to call it the path to herd immunity, and now he calls it the path to normality. Uh, and he has these really beautiful data visualizations that basically show when he thinks um, enough people are going to have immunity either through a vaccine or through a COVID infection or both uh, that we're going to start to be able to get back to normal. And um, I just really recommend this site. It's uh, His website is covid19-projections.com, and, and this is a page on there. Um, I really recommend actually almost all of his work, which I found uh, extremely helpful. But this piece has just a really lovely visualization that is the best I've seen, um, you know, taking making some guesses about how quickly vaccines will be taken up and when they will be approved for children. And also including in his model estimates of how much COVID is going to continue to spread in the coming months. Uh, so you can start to see uh, when we're going to get back to normal. And I think the good news is that he thinks by the summer we're going to get awfully close to herd immunity. But he also cautions that we probably won't get all the way to herd immunity uh, in this year, just given the combination of uh, the timeline for children getting vaccinated and also some vaccine hesitancy that we're all aware of. Well, my story sort of builds on uh, what Margot was talking about. It's from the Washington Post. It's by Maura Judkis, and it's called The Joy of Vax. The people giving the shots are seeing hope, and it's contagious. And I will say it's the first happy story I've read about frontline health workers in over a year. It's just a chronicle of how good it feels for the nurses and medics and pharmacists who are vaccinating people to be doing something positive. Um, you really should read the whole story, but this is my favorite line. Quote, the arrival of the shot has transformed the grim pop-up up clinics of the pandemic into gratitude factories, reassembly lines where Americans could begin to put back together their busted psyches. So on that hopeful note, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we're all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Margot? At Sanger Katz. Alice. At Alice Olstein. Tammy. At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.